You're listening to the Business of Craft Beer podcast, recorded live from the University of Vermont's Continuing and Distance Education Department with your host, Greg Dunkley. Whether you're looking to break into the craft beer industry or start your own brewery, this podcast is for you. Each week, we will discuss all aspects of the craft beer industry from sales, operations, marketing, trends, and analysis with industry experts and thought leaders. If you'd like to be part of the show, please call 929-477-1757. And now here's your host, Greg Dunkley. Tom, can you hear us? Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, uh, did you hear my, my, my initial question? Uh, no, I didn't. I think we were having a little bit of static there. Um, okay. Uh, sorry it? about that. Um, let me, let me uh, repeat that. Um, so before we uh, pick up where we left off the show last, last time, I'd like you to talk a little bit about the, research behind your book. Um, can you tell us how you conducted the research? Oh, sure. Great. Um, and, and first of all, it's, it's great to be back. Thanks for having me. Uh, the book, The Audacity of Hops, took about two years to write, and it really was a matter of reaching out to some of the earliest pioneers uh, who, were, who were still around, thankfully, very much so, and just building on some of the research that had been done before by other great uh, uh, beer writers out there and and journalists out there, and you know setting up interviews, traveling, sort of the way most people go about writing a, a nonfiction book uh, uh, of contemporary history. And uh, I was very lucky in the fact that uh, everybody everybody I reached out to was really forthcoming, and I appreciated that no matter where they were, uh, you know, in their, in their career, whether they had uh, long left American craft beer, whether they were still heading large brewing companies, what have you. And I, I just, I just sort of built on interview after interview and, and research done, you know, done before built on that and it all, you know, started to come together. Were you uh, were these phone interviews or did you actually go and meet with people? 
some were phone interviews, some were uh, in person. I, I did a couple trips to California, uh, at least a couple trips to the Great American Beer Festival, which was fantastic. And the Brewers Association itself was very helpful uh, with statistics and, and uh, very forthcoming with uh, their own archives and histories. Um, I went to Maine, I'm trying to think. It's been a few years. But, uh, yeah, it, uh, a lot of them were in person. Some were, some were on the phone. The only person I really regret that I never uh, got to talk to in person, uh, either on the phone or, or live, was uh, uh, Michael Jackson, the great beer critic. He had actually passed away several years before I started researching the book. But uh, his his relatives were very helpful and very forthcoming. And I should also add that, uh, that several people who were you know no longer involved in brewing, uh, they'd moved on to other careers or whatnot, uh, shared their archives so i have a lot of uh you know old business plans and and notations and things like that which were kind of invaluable because not only are they it's a lot of information but the information is dated so you know what month you know they were doing such and such and what year you know they set such and such a goal so that was great well that must have been a fascinating two years of of research and writing yeah, it was. It was. It was, it was really cool because I, I did not know much about it at all coming in. So. Uh huh. I bet you drank some good beer along the way. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, and discovered new beers. <laughs> that was that was the best part. Yeah. Right. Well, last time, uh, two weeks ago, we talked about the first uh, part of your book, uh, first half. Uh, Factors which led to the shakeout during the mid-1990s, uh, where a number of breweries, of course, closed. Uh, we uh-huh. discussed uh, the NBC Dateline story uh, about leading uh, contract brewers and the suggestion that they were not real breweries. Uh, of course, rise of products offered by Big Beer, um, uneven product quality in some cases, uh, ABs, uh-huh. uh Hundred percent frame of mind message to distributors, among other other topics. Uh, so, for people who are not familiar with that that period, um, it's a it's a great read. Or go back and listen to the first segment uh, where we talked about those issues. Um, this mm-hmm. week, uh, let's examine some of the factors behind the dramatic double digit craft beer growth over the past six to eight years. Of course, that's what everybody's talking about now. Um, our summer series, Bubble or Sustainable Growth, examining today's craft beer industry involves uh, producers, distributors, industry analysts, uh, journalists like yourself, uh, and we invite callers to join the conversation. So just in a minute, I'll be giving, giving out that number again. So let's begin by putting some of the numbers behind this fantastic growth that's occurred. Um, the Brewers Association uh, has defined categories of breweries. The craft's growth during this explosive eight-year period from 2008 to approximately today. Sure, you've basically seen a, um, a, a, a manifold increase. I mean, the the number of breweries now is the greatest in American history, or at least since eight, the 1870s. Uh, there's something like 4,200 plus breweries now of all sizes. The vast majority are making less than are producing fewer than 15,000 barrels annually. And so you've seen not only a, a you know a, this sort of flowering in the last several years in the number of breweries, but they they're happening at the at a local level. 
You know, it's not national brewing companies or even, you know, regional brewing companies. It's local. Yeah, we certainly uh, we certainly see that uh, evidenced around here uh, in Vermont. Of course, I'm in Burlington, Vermont, and uh, it seems to be a proliferation of of breweries, and many of them are aiming at the at the local market, not not the not right. even statewide necessarily, or or certainly not regionally. Right, and a lot of them are brew pubs too, and that that's uh, so that sort of echoes the early 1990s for a long time brew pubs are the breweries that make their beer on site and sell it on site often as part of a restaurant. They were outpacing the breweries as far as openings in the nineties. They really started to peak, you know, 94, 95, 96. And they're doing so again, there's just something, some, something like a, a, a huge jump in the number of brew pubs. And those are really local. I mean, some are part of change. Yes. But yeah. it's, it's beer in a place. You know, they're, they're produced on-site and sold on-site primarily. Yeah. Well, um, to uh, listeners, we're talking with Tom Acatelli, author of The Audacity of Hops, uh, The History of America's Craft Beer Revolution. Um, if you'd like to join the conversation, please do so. Uh, the phone lines are open. Uh, that's 929-477-1757. Again, 929-477. Four seven seven one seven five seven. So let's explore uh, some of the factors behind this growth. Uh, two thousand and eight to two thousand and fourteen, which is the last numbers. Well, I guess they just came out with two thousand and fifteen numbers from the Brewers Association. But microbreweries, those under fifteen thousand, three hundred and fourteen percent increase. Uh, regional breweries over uh, close to one hundred and twenty percent increase during that period. And brew pubs, forty uh, percent. So just uh, amazing growth over the past six to eight years. What are the factors, in your view, that are driving this uh, tremendous growth? Well, there's several things, and it, and it really is tremendous, and, and kind of it must be gratifying for the industry too after the big shakeout in the '90s. But I think there's there's several things. One is just sort of a, a craft beer fits very well with the whole you know locavore, eating local, drinking local movement the slow food movement. I mean, it's almost, it's, it's almost a perfect fit, you know, because beer tastes best when it's freshest and it's freshest when it's closest to where it's made. Uh, I think there, you know, there's a whole generation coming up, something like 90 million millennials in the United States uh, with uh, tremendous spending power and they're coming into craft beer and, and they can't remember a world. They can't remember a consumer marketplace where it wasn't big. You know, they don't, they don't remember the 1970s and, and uh, well, heck, some of them don't remember the 80s that well. Um, there's a, a sort of social media uh, ecosystem that simply wasn't there in the 90s. You know, uh, Facebook started, I believe, in 2004, Twitter in 06, and, and uh, other social media platforms after that that you know, allow people a sort of immediacy as far as sharing information about breweries. And I would also add a, a untapped to that. Untap launched in you know the the app the social beer app that started in 2010. Um, and finally, I mean it's just that the beer is very good and it's uniformly good. One of the, one of the problems in the 90s, one of the challenges that was uh, impossible to overcome for some operations, was that the quality was uneven or iffy. And now you know the quality of the beer being put out there is is fantastic. It really is. And, and um, you know, the United States has kind of emerged as the well, not even kind of, it really has emerged as the stylistic go-to for the 
for the world of beer. You know, sort of wrested that from Belgium and Germany, and the Czech Republic. Yeah, it's amazing. You can go almost anywhere in the in the U.S. today and find not only uh, craft breweries or brew pubs, but you can find really quality products. And of course, that wasn't that wasn't the case 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, and mm-hmm. you know, now it's just you know, I was in Massachusetts uh, a week ago and uh, visited some breweries that w- one case was just just opened not long ago making really great products uh, from the get-go and then some, some uh, breweries that have been around for, an, uh, for a number of years and are growing, growing really nicely, continue, continuing to grow um, and making great products. Uh, so it's just, uh, it's almost anywhere you go now, it's, um, it's good beer. Mm-hmm. And I'd also add the, the technical skill, you know, there's a lot of places to train now. Uh, for the brewing side of the industry, and that wasn't always the case either about 20 years ago. So Yeah. Let me uh, bring in a caller here. Um, uh, caller 9629, uh, could you announce yourself, your name, and where are you from? Hi, hi. Thanks for uh, choosing me, guys. Uh, my name is Ava. I'm from Winooski. Um, and I just had a quick question for Tom. Um, I was curious. You know, you were talking about the web forums earlier. And, you know, what have – What's the, what's the role that web forums such as Beer Advocate, Rate Beer, Untapped, and All About Beer, you know, and others, what have those had on educating the consumers about craft beer? What role do they have? Well, well, I think they sort of form a kind of, well, first of all, they, they put people in touch with each other, right? There's some of the busier forums uh, in American food and drink, I think, beer or otherwise. But also, you know, they kind of form an institutional knowledge. You can go back and you can search, um, and get a sense of when things became popular, why they became popular, why things fell out of favor, why, you know, uh, and when. And I think they just sort of provide, um, you know, an archive of, of, what, of what was cool and why. And you're seeing a lot, you know, like some of the styles that have emerged recently and become very popular, uh, you know, you get a sense of why and, and just how popular they've become through, through some of these forums. Yeah, going back to that element of uh, sort of experimentation and, and interpretation of beer styles, uh, certainly if you just went around and drank the same uh, beer styles and the same products or more or less the same products, it might not uh, be that interesting between you know Vermont, Massachusetts, Maine, or wherever uh-huh. one is traveling. But but it's it's that seems that that experimentation uh, of, of how people interpret uh, beer styles, that's really, um, really exciting and, and uh, you know, results in uh, new discoveries everywhere we go. Right, right. I, I would actually say that there is a, a regional difference in some styles. Um, I mean, the IPA is the best example. You know, on the East Coast where we are, you know, uh, it tends to be milder. And then the West Coast is very famous now for super hoppy, hot bomb IPAs. So uh, much more bitter. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, you know, fabulous growth uh, over the past eight years or more. Um, How do you view the sustainability of this growth? Um, Are there some segments of the industry, either by size or by type of brewery, brew pub, micro, nano brewery, et cetera, 
that are more susceptible to a growing competition that we're all seeing? Or will all of these categories simply benefit from a growing consumer demand for craft products? I think they will all benefit. I think this, you know, the rising tide will lift all boats. Um, it's much more, the growth now is much more sustainable than it was because what we talked about, you know, the the, the way it fits in uh, with, you know, local war movement, millennials, uh, the, the, the sort of community that's formed now around it. Um, and plus the beer is just fantastic. Uh, I, I, do think what you're going to see is some some breweries at the you know some of the larger craft breweries are going to pull away and become you know true national even international uh, brewing companies and concerns and the the growth will continue to be on on the smaller production end as far as number of breweries. Uh, I think it's particularly good um, because it's going to you know th- this growth is going to change the kind of beer Americans drink, right? Right now, you know, for all this talk of craft beer success, it still accounts for, you know, a small percentage of the market. Most Ameri- most beer bought in the United States is Budweiser, Miller Lite, et cetera. But I think as there's more and more breweries out, craft breweries out there, they, their popularity is sustained and more and more open. Uh, you know, I think that the stylistic shift you're going to see is to – IPAs, pale ales, stouts, porters, etc. And I think within a generation, those are going to become the dominant styles of beer, not the you know the watery pilsners of Budweiser, Miller Lite. So that's going to be kind of mm-hmm. cool to see, and it's going to be one of those things where you, you it's, it's just going to be incredible because for so long, you know, we're going on the second century of these of watery pilsner dominating the market basically, and so yeah. it's going to be kind of kind of neat at some point to see the majority of beers sold in the United States being of these more esoteric or once esoteric styles. I mean, that'll be a while. Yeah. I don't think that's going to happen overnight at all, but it's going to happen. Yeah. I don't know nationally how much this is a factor, but, you know, in, in, in Vermont, in this region, uh, Cezanne, for example, uh, are really big now, very popular. Um, obviously they don't represent a very large percentage of the, of the total craft consumption, but uh, people are getting pretty creative with, with their Cezanne products. Um, uh-huh. and, and then a growing trend, I think, nationally are, are the session beers. So unlike the session uh, products of old, where you, you ended up sacrificing flavor, today you get both high flavor and lower alcohol uh, all in one can. So it's, uh, it's great for those of us who like to... Uh, not consume a lot of alcohol, but like the quality of good beer. Right. You referenced before um, the the size of breweries, and uh, you know I took some time to graph um, the Brewers Association data on breweries by size, and it's pretty compelling. Um, uh, most craft breweries are indeed small uh, and very small, according to the BA's data in nineteen. Oh, I think it was two thousand fourteen. I think it was. Um, so a couple years old, uh, 90% of all craft breweries were under 5,000 barrels. Um, 67% were under 2,500 barrels, and nearly half were under 500 barrels per year in production. Um, really amazing. I mean, many of us think of Brooklyn 
Brewery, Deschutes, uh, Lagunitas, Long Trail. You know, these are all over 125,000 barrels a year. Yet the reality is uh, we're talking about very local and 500 barrels of production per year. Um, uh-huh. So we won't get we won't get into the economics here of of that. But what what constitutes a profitable brewery? We won't be talking all about those details right now. But what about from the standpoint of pure competition? Uh, what are you seeing as um, you know these highly local and small brewery markets? Will these small guys be able to survive? I, I think so, in the sense that uh, if they if they choose their market well, in some areas you're going to find a much more receptive audience. Uh, you know, certain areas of the country, craft beer represents well more than the 10 to 15% that it represents nationally as far as, you know, marketplace share. So, you know, you're opening the Pacific Northwest or um, <coughs> San Francisco Bay Area, Northern California, you know, New England, especially the Boston area, uh, New York City, Washington, D.C. Anyway, these areas that already have a really robust craft beer market, even though there's a lot of competition, I think if, if you open in these areas, you're going to have a much better chance of success because that, that ecosystem is there. People know what you're selling. Uh, there, there's distrib- distribution channels in place. There's financing channels in place. Um, I think in those areas, you know, the, the, these smaller guys are going to do just fine. Um, some areas where it's less familiar, they might, they might have difficulties. Um, and I also think, you know, it depends on the quality being sustained as well. You know, if it's good, it's good. Um, so, you know, it's very difficult now to to not, you know, it, in comparison to decades ago, say the 80s, 90s, it's much more easier to open, okay, uh, to, and to stay open. It's much more difficult to fail quickly as they did back then. Um, so... It's going to be, you know, it's it's going to be interesting. I think it's one of the more gratifying trends. These sort of small local brew pubs and breweries that you discover when you're on vacation this summer. You know, it's yeah, cool. I'd like to pick up on that theme in a minute. We have a caller. Um, I'd like to bring them in. Uh, so nine three zero three. Please state your name and where you're from. Hello, 9303. Oh. Guess we lost that caller. So let, let me just go back to that theme a little bit. I know in your book you wrote about um, Anchor Steam's Fritz Maytag and his sage advice uh, he offered colleagues uh, at one, I think it was a 1998 craft brewers conference uh, where he, he uh, promoted the idea that small is beautiful. Um, mm-hmm. He talked about the um, don't assume that you should make every leap in size and that not every company may easily make the next jump in size or even try or should try to do so. Um, So are we are we talking about limiting one's expectations for growth every year and not attempting to compete with the high flying breweries? Uh, What are the pros and cons of this approach Uh, is as Fritz uh, uh, advocated, is small growth uh, um, uh, a beautiful thing? And uh, I, you know, is it even possible today? Can you can you grow at two or three or four percent a year and survive in this market? Right. I, I think the answer is in uh, breweries such as as Anchor 
And there, there's several others from the earlier days. When I say earlier days, I mean, you know, the anchor's unique that it goes all the way back to the 60s, but there's some that started in the 80s and 90s and followed that advice. So the pro is, you know, basically they, they, they're still around. They stuck around. They grew. They did grow slowly, first in their local markets, then regionally, and then some nationally and even internationally now. Uh, the, you know, the con is that you don't, you don't grow as fast. But the history of American craft beer is, is littered with operations that grew too fast and sort of went in trying to be the next Sam Adams. And uh, that did not work for them. And I think they, they serve as a cautionary tale. And there's any number of them in my book, and you can just sort of Google, uh, you know, the name the names the names ring down through the decades. And I think what's happening now is, you know, people are getting into the game. They're they're opening that brew pub or that brewery and they're getting their, their, their footing. Some are only doing, you know, uh their local market and a lot are only doing their statewide uh their, their state market. Um and then there's a few that are going, you know, for a rapid expansion. But I think that's the minority. And I uh-huh. think it's because, and I think it's because number one, it's, it's difficult to do, you know, to scale up. Uh, you know, it's a capital-intensive business, and and it's easy to lose money. Um, but also, I think there, it's because of what happened in the past. People realize yeah. you don't have to grow exponentially. You don't have to be the next Sam Adams to enjoy yeah. success. Yeah. Um, we're talking with Tom Acatelli, author of the Audacity of Hops: uh, History of America's Craft Beer Revolution. Uh, if you'd like to join the conversation, uh, the phone lines are open. Please call 929-477-1757. Uh, Tom, you just mentioned uh, that that local theme um, and, and expectations of growth. Uh, in the first show, you mentioned that some breweries found uh, that focusing local to home was their best strategy um, rather than expanding beyond a brewery's primary market uh, and competing head-on with other well-established and uh, well-financed breweries in another state, staying local mm-hmm. option seems to have worked for some. I'm thinking here of a new Glarus uh, Brewing Company. This mm-hmm. and sells a lot of beer in just one state, uh, Wisconsin, their home, home state of Wisconsin, or uh, Shorts Brewing Company, who is a brew pub in uh, northern Michigan, uh, appears mm-hmm. to have no no desire to expand to Illinois or Wisconsin or neighboring states. They're doing their their business model uh, suggests staying local is the is the best best option. Uh, so I think that reinforces uh, kind of what you were just saying. And uh, are, are you seeing examples of that just you know being repeating itself ac- across the country with smaller breweries? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there there are several other examples out there and some more recent, I mean, New Glarus is kind of uh, on the older side. Uh, yeah. I mean, it goes back to the night. Um, there was one in, there is one in Massachusetts called Jack's Abbey where I mean, I'm, I'm from, uh, from Cambridge and they've only recently expanded out of mass. I think they're in, in Pennsylvania now and Rhode Island, but for a long time, you know, they were just in Massachusetts and probably so. Uh, yeah. The best example I can think of is Russian river, uh, which produces some of the most sought-after beers in the country, and they only do California. Now, California is huge, but still, they don't. They, could, they easily have the popularity and the reputation to go beyond that, and they don't. Yeah. So, you know, that, that, that can be achieved, and that can help a brewery. You know, the hardest, some of these 
some of these beers that are really sought after, they're sought after because they're hard to get. And so people, uh, that only adds to the allure and to the price tag sometimes. Yeah, you you got that. I, I just finished my um, my last uh, Pilsner of Jack Jack's Abbey uh, that I bought when I was in Massachusetts. And, uh, you know, my desire to get my hands on more of it only grows because uh, I can't get it. <laughs> Right. It's well, not, not available one, here. <laughs> there's one in uh, Vermont that's almost, is it called? The Alchemist, that's what it's called. And the Heady Topper, and that's like that's like cultish. I mean, people will line up, from, you know, not, not maybe for miles, but it seems like it to get it. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's um, as as a student, uh, one of the students in our program uh, wrote, he says it's it's almost the, the uh, the game of the hunt for, for the product, you know, you're knowing where it's going to be distributed on which days. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that, that game of, of, uh, of getting it, you know, getting, getting your supply, uh, which you can share with friends or, or not, um, that, that seems to be part of the allure. Um, obviously it's a very high quality product. Um, and people, mm-hmm. I run into people all the time from, Massachusetts, Maryland, and other places that are uh, in Vermont looking for their their products that they can't find elsewhere. Um, you know, Lawson's in uh, in the Waitsfield area. Uh, Hill Farmstead is another another brewery like that in Vermont that people stand in lines uh, waiting uh-huh. to get. Scarce. It's can't you can't you can't find it in many places. Uh, you can find it more in uh, you know restaurants and bars where, where they carry it on on tap, but it's harder to find uh, elsewhere. Right. Well, uh, you know, I, the I, other... I just want to add, oh, yeah, sorry, I just want to add an anecdote right here about, um, I think it was Pliny the Younger, one of the Russian River brew, uh, uh, beers that they release seasonally every February, uh, or annually every February, uh, was once, it was a bar in nearby in California that once uh, had a tap that said Miller Lite, and but it was retailing for like ten ninety nine a pint, and that was one of the. If you were in the know, you knew that Miller Lite uh, tap was the Russian River beer. So yeah, <laughs> that's a great story. Um, so I know there's there's much const, uh, conversation out there about what constitutes craft beer. I suppose we've all heard uh, uh, those questioning whether the term craft is perhaps quaint, uh, overused, or even outdated. Um, I saw a reference recently, Sean Hill of Hill Farmstead was quoted as saying, what's craft beer? Everyone but Miller and and Coors and Imbev, right? Uh, Everyone else is craft. And then he went on to say, what do I have in common with these big craft breweries shipping their beer across the country? Well, Mm -hmm. the suggestion of course was um, that, that clearly not much, uh, uh, when your when your audience is uh, local and you're making fresh and really creative products, uh, so what what are you hearing about this this whole you know uh, issue of what we should be calling uh, what we formerly called craft beer? Right, uh, it used to be much easier to define at least a craft brewery, if not craft beer itself. If, you know the the shorthand. That, that went really back to the 1970s and was established by Anchor and then sort of codified by the Brewers Association this decade, or actually last decade, 2005, and then updated, was you know small, indep- small independently owned 
and traditional. That meant like making relatively small batches of beer with traditional ingredients and methods under yep. an independent owner. Uh, yep. Now, that's kind of been shredded. <laughs> it's, it's very bogus now to say craft beer is dead, long live craft beer. So it's, it's that kind of, um, you know, people, it's like, like the, the, the shorthand definition of obscenity. You know when you see it or hear it. And, and with craft beer, you know it when you taste it. Uh, yeah. So the term craft beer is kind of is kind of dead, but I think craft the, the, the term craft brewery and craft brewers you know those, those terms are still very much alive, and you know the, the main thing defining those okay is probably the ownership, the idea that it's independently owned or at least the majority of an operation is independently owned. Um, but then again, you know, there's been a lot of mergers and acquisitions lately that have shredded that even more because, you know, Lagunitas is now in a 50-50 partnership with Heineken. And yeah. I don't think there's anybody out there who wouldn't say that Lagunitas is, you know, is a fantastic brewery with fantastic beer. You know, is it a craft beer now? Is it a craft brewery now? Well, you know, what, what do you say? Um, but <laughs> I think if you tasted the beer, it's very much craft beer. So. You know, I had a, a raging uh, debate about that very uh, brewery and issue uh, last summer at my uh, good friends in Arlington, Virginia, and he posed that same that same question. Um, we went over to Blue Jacket and and met with Greg Angert, and he posed the same question. And you know, Greg and I had sort of the same take on it, which is part of it's uh, an attitude of you know of experimentation and, and quality. And uh, if mm-hmm. you can maintain that that attitude, uh, then uh, and, and continue to make excellent products, then um, then you certainly uh, should be called craft or or whatever it is that we end up uh, calling them in the future. I'd like to bring in uh, a caller now. Um, let me go to. Uh, uh, let me see if I can. Go ahead. Oh uh, nine seven nine. Tell us where you're from and and your name, please. Hi, I'm uh, Sean from uh, New York City, New York. Go ahead, Sean, with your question. Thanks for calling. No problem. Um, it's a little bit two-part question, but uh, back to kind of we mentioned before the intense kind of capital-intensive nature of starting a brewery. What is a reasonable timeline to profitability for a smaller and craft brewery? And part two of that, in terms of the boom that's been going on, if there have been, I mean, we've been in a very expansive economic time the past three or four years and this boom has been happening, you know, if there were to be a downturn in the economy, how do you feel that would affect this boom? Will be, would there be a shakeout or do you feel most places, you know, would probably be able to survive or how would the larger economy affect, you know, a downturn affect the business, do you think? Huh. Well, that's a, those are great questions. The first one, as far as the timeline for, for success I mean, I can only base it on the research that I've done into into the uh, you know some of the older breweries and, and some of the the more established ones, and you know I would say it's got to be at least a couple of years, two to four years before you know uh, if if the growth is sustainable. Um, right. And there's some fantastic you know memoirs out there by brewers who started their operations, and they they can tell they they go into great detail and can tell you more about what it takes to build. A successful brewery scaling up is extremely difficult, and a lot of them, uh, early on at least, resorted to contract brewing, which is brewing their beer elsewhere. You know, in a, a brewery that was under capacity. The second question right. is fantastic. Um, 
I, I don't think an economic downturn, even one as great as, you know, 2007, 2008, would affect craft beer. Um, it, it, it's an affordable luxury, even in bad times, you know, compared with, say, fine wine. Um, what's now being called craft spirits, you know, and the sort of the higher-end spirits market, the more expensive bottles of, of you know, whiskey, what, uh, vodka, what have you, uh, they were greatly impacted by mm. the downturn because, you know, people literally could not afford to drop $80 a bottle, $100 a bottle on fantastic stuff. And, and the yeah. type of people who were doing that on a regular basis, you know, financial services workers and whatnot, were, were being laid off. So they were not going out to these, these lavish lunches and dinners. Um, I don't think you would see that with craft beer. Uh, the, the financing might dry up. You know, for some, some of these guys are, you know, they're enjoying right. a great financing climate for loans and whatnot uh, for for startups, but I, I don't think you know from the consumer side. You know, they, they, people would still buy. I, I just mm-hmm. it's, it's one of those things that's kind of recession proof as far as so, Tom. Let, Tom, I, I had this very conversation yesterday with a friend, and we were we were sitting at, at a local uh, brew pub, and there were products. Uh, you know, we were commenting on the. $7 for a 13-ounce glass of beer, and then there were others yeah. on the men- menu that were, you know, 8 9 and there was even one $10. Um, I'm not sure what what the how many ounces there were with that because I wasn't about to buy it, but, uh, <laughs> um, you know, we, we, are we reaching a point where the, the price of these products, they won't force us to go back to Bud, clearly, um, uh-huh. but, uh, or, or I should say big beer. <laughs> Um, but but they they may force us to be a little more um, uh, price sensitive and looking for those favorite you know products of ours that are on sale or are on the retail side or are a little sure. more affordable. Right, I think I mean the beers you're describing especially are sort of uh, not not one offs but very you know I'm guessing very specific styles and. Um, you know, rare, more rarer runs, like the limited runs. Um, I, I think you're right that people will just sort of seek out, you know, beer for beer's sake. You know, they'll, they'll buy the 12 pack or the case uh, rather than pay by the pint at, at a restaurant or bar. And yeah. that's why I think it can, you know, it can sustain itself even, even if there was an economic downturn. So let's, uh, let's bring in another caller. Um, uh, five zero one seven. Uh, please announce yourself, your name, and where you're from. Well, it looks like we may have lost their caller. So, um, so I, you know, we did talk a little bit about about the uh, mergers uh, and what that's doing to the to the industry. Um, there are some that are are uh, really concerned about whether um, it's going to it's going to have an effect. Um, maybe maybe not on the quality, but the perception of uh, what we uh, formerly called craft beer. Maybe some of us still do. Um, you know, when you look out a few years and you uh, you know see some more, whether it's venture capital firms buying into the craft space or big beer uh, acquiring uh, still more of the of the larger better known craft brands out there um will this will this have a uh, an effect and if so how how might that 
might that impact uh, both those big brands as well as the local products? A lot of, and there's a lot of worry over, um, you know, what's going to happen because of these mergers and acquisitions. So, putting aside the whole style debate, you know, what 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 are these operations that are getting bought up or or, or in part or in whole? Are they still craft beer? And just focusing on what might happen, um, I think it will only, add, you know, it, it will only get that that type of these styles of beer further out there, far, further and farther out there to more people. Um, whether eventually, though, you know, we we might see a point where, you know, an Anheuser-Busch InBev owns 20 or 30 brands. And so when you go into a bar or into a restaurant, everything on tap, while it might look different, is essentially coming from the same place. But, again, though, I, I think from a consumer viewpoint, it's, it's actually very exciting, and there's more choices out there than ever. Um, now the big the big fear for the smaller guys and the, and the guys we've been talking about the ones making fewer than fifteen thousand or even five thousand barrels of beer uh, is that you know some of the, some of the acquisitions have not just been of breweries but of distributorships and so it's choking off some of the dis- distribution channels that these guys rely on you know Anheuser Busch has bought like four or five distributorships in the last few in the last couple of years so. Yeah, that seems to be a growing issue. I know the Brewers Association is uh, is very very focused on this one, and and uh, we're going to have to pay close attention to that issue as we look across the country and see see how how those acquisitions of, of di- distributors uh, plays out. Mm-hmm. Well, unfortunately, um, we are out of time. Uh, I'd like to thank you, Tom, for. Uh, for joining us the last two sessions. Uh, Tom, of course, is the author of The Audacity of Hops, uh, History of America's Craft Beer Revolution. Uh, uh, This series, uh, this summer, uh, throughout the summer, is focusing on bubbles, uh, bubble or sustainable growth, examining today's uh, craft beer industry. And next Tuesday, um, join us. uh, We'll be uh, talking about trends, uh, numbers, further tr- numbers with Bart Watson, chief econ- economist for the Brewers Association based in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, and if you've, if you've ever dreamed about opening your own brewery or uh, are looking for a career change into, into craft, uh, the University of Vermont's Business of Craft Beer Certificate offers the necessary industry-specific knowledge to make this all possible. Uh, So check out our program. Uh, And until next week, uh, enjoy the summer weather, and don't forget to visit your local breweries. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.